It's Groundhog Day. I've been looking for my shadow all morning, and whether I see it or not, this sermon's not going to be any shorter, so i just going to have to deal with that. Matthew chapter 5, we're starting a series in the Beatitudes. Uh, this first paragraph, if you will, of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes, as we think about it, is an introduction to Jesus's, well, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to ever preach. Amen? Amen. Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus Christ himself. And as we enter into this series, I want us to focus on Jesus's focus on the plural. Like, for example, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or for they shall be comforted, or they shall inherit the earth. He's writing it in the plural form, where he's speaking it in the plural form. It reminds me of Paul's writings, Philippians 2, 4, that let each of us look not only to our own interest, that's me, right? Somebody say me, but look to the interest of others, that's we, right? That's all of us, that's we, all who have tuned in, logged on, dropped by, that's all of us. So, we're going to focus on, in this series, a we, not a me, attitude. Now, I understand that we live in a culture that's all about me. Do you, do you know there are a, over a million selfies uploaded to social media every single day? Cameras used to be used to take pictures of other stuff, right? Today, pictures are being used to take, or cameras being used to take pictures of what? Self. Not other stuff, right? I mean, that's the, where we live. And what you're going to discover as we walk through these Beatitudes is what Jesus taught was countercultural to how we live completely. And we're going to see this in this series. Today we're dealing with the first Beatitude, uh, and it is found in verse 3. And the message is entitled, When Worst Becomes Best. Uh, you know, I, it was great to go to California I wouldn't want to live there, but it was great to visit there. You heard a woo over here from, I think, from my wife. She had a great time. Of course, she was with me. That's why she had a great time. <laughs> but as you think about California, I want you to pray for them. Uh, the executive director of the California Baptist Convention said there's 35 million lost people in the state of California. That makes up, that's more than the population, he said, of seven states around them. That's a lot of folks that are lost without Christ. So pray for the churches, pray for church planners, pray for our missionaries, pray for our uh, California Southern Baptist Convention over there doing a great work. As today we think about when worst becomes best, right? Every area of life that we live Things are good and things are bad. There's a best part, there's a worst part. And when Jesus spoke about these things, again, it would shock his hearers. He taught as one who had authority that things that they had not heard before. Like this, for example, Jesus would say things like, but many who are first will be what? And the last what? I don't make it, that's countercultural. Or Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That flies in the face of the prosperity gospel right there. Or Jesus would say things like, as you did it to one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. Well, wait a second. We don't like doing things for the least of these. We like to do things for people who are going to turn around and do something for us. Don't we? we I scratch my back, I scratch your back. I'll do you a favor, you do me a favor. Jesus says, absolutely not. You need to be doing things for people who cannot pay you back. <laughs> They're utterly and desperately broke, and they can't pay you back. If you do that, then you've done it unto me. Again, this is countercultural. Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of the mouth, out of the heart, 
that defiles a person. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus often said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. We're going to discover in these eight weeks that what Jesus taught is opposite of the world. It's upside down. It's backwards. It's inside out from the way we've been taught to think and live. And we're going to discover that. And you're going to be stretched. You're going to be challenged. Uh, These Beatitudes are going to be in our face and on our front porch and in our house. I want you to see what other people have said about what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. One commentator said it like this. If the Sermon on the Mount is the Constitution, then the Beatitudes is the preamble. That's how he described it that way. John Phillips said, Here then in lies the Lord's recipe for a happy life, a happy death, and a happy eternity. David Jeremiah described the Beatitudes as how to be happy according to Jesus. Robert Smith said the Beatitudes address the root of a disciple, while the Sermon on the Mount addresses the fruit of a disciple. Ray Pritchard said the Beatitudes, he described them this way, the best definition of of a disciple in all the New Testament is in Matthew 5, 3 through 12. You want to know what a disciple is? What a disciple should be of Christ? This is the best definition right here. Others have said the Beatitudes describe who we already are in Christ, our being. Like, and, and the Sermon on the Mount describes our doing, that we do what we do because we are who we are. It's kind of like growing up into the Beatitudes when you're in Christ. Uh, anonymous words used to describe this, or from anonymous sources, words used to describe the Beatitudes. Countercultural, opposite of the world, paradoxical in nature. Isn't it the strangest of things that the Beatitudes are referred to as the upside down? Isn't that the strangest of things? Well, what is so upside down about these Beatitudes? We're going to read uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. We're going to unpack the first three verses. So if you're there, Matthew 5, say, I'm there. All right, look at verse 1. I'm going to read. You follow along, 1 through 12, and then we'll unpack verse 1, 2, and 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Like, rich are the poor? Yes, exactly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's a blessing nobody wants, isn't it? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Like they have a courtside seat to God, front row seat. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Gracious Father, we humble ourselves as we are honored to gather in this place. As the word of God is the central focus of our worship today. As we open the word, as we unpack the word, as we hear from you. We pray for the power of your word and the presence of the Holy Spirit to just 
overcome us and overwhelm us to the point that we are stretched and changed and challenged and fashioned into the men and women, boys and girls that you desire us to be. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Now this takeaway that God has really dropped into my heart this week is it's really, it's going to shock you on one level. It's, It's almost weird to hear me say this, but this is what Jesus is teaching in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and this is really his life work. Here, here's, what, here's what God gave me this week from this text. Here's what God said. You are living your worst life now. If you are in Christ right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're living your worst life right now. And what I mean is your life on this earth. Like, for the believer, it just gets better and better and better. Now, sure, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have better days. You're going to have worse days. I get that. There's a best part and worst part of every life experience. But all in all, as a follower of Christ, listen to me. You are living your worst life right now if you're in Christ. Now, prosperity gospel preachers will have you believe that in Christ you can have your best life now. That's a lie. It's impossible. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain or loss? Gain. Right. Because heaven is what? Far better. See, right now, the Lord is with us. He is in us. He is for us, for those of us who are in Christ. But one day, we'll be with him. And that's far better. Oh, it's far better. So be encouraged today. I want to give an illustration of maybe the best part and the worst part of an, of, of an experience or something that happens in life. I want, to, I want to do a wedding illustration if you will allow me a few minutes to do that. So what I need is a, I need a stand-in bride and a stand-in groom. Brady Greer, don't move. Okay? <laughs> don't get up. I tell you what, I'm going to make it easy. Wes and Holly Ford have volunteered. For this, they just didn't know it. So Wes and Holly, y'all give the Fords a hand. Can you do that for the Fords? Welcome. Yeah, come on up here. All right, y'all stand right here. The bride's on this side. Have y'all not done this before? Yeah, groom one time. That's good, one time. That's good. Groom here, bride here. Okay, y'all didn't know y'all were about to recite vows, did you? You really didn't know that what you're going to recite are vows you've written for each other in about a minute. And now... Now, Holly's a writer. She'll be okay. Wes, well, no, I'm just kidding about all that. But you, you do know that a wedding, you know we have weddings and funerals backwards, don't you? I've shared this with you before. Wedding, we weep and well at weddings, right? When we should be weeping, are we weeping well at funerals when we should be weeping and well at weddings? Because these two have no idea what they're getting into, right? They don't have a clue. And at funerals, we should rejoice because those who die in Christ, they're far better, right? So I want to give you an illustration of my favorite part of any wedding, the best part of a wedding for me. So Holly, you stand right here, please. Okay, Wes, you come up here with me. I need a stand-in dad, somebody old enough. Josh, sure, come on over here, Josh. (laughs) Come over here and stand right next to Come on over here. You're going to hand the bride off to the groom. Now, so you're down here with her on the other side, Josh. Yeah, yeah, this side. You haven't done this yet, right? The other side. There you go. You're going to hand her off to the groom. This is my, the best part of any ceremony comes when the question is asked, who then gives, in this situation, Holly in marriage to Wes? And how does he respond? Her mother and I. There you go. He got it right. 
And so you walk down and get your bride. And watch this. Josh is going to hand her off to Wes. All right, Josh, you're no longer important. You can go sit down. (laughs) And they come together. Did y'all see that? And then they come up here. You know what this is a picture of? Wes represents Christ, the bridegroom. Holly represents the church. So this is a picture of Christ coming back for his church. That's the best part of a wedding for me. I love that part of a wedding every time. Thank y'all. Y'all give the Fords a hand. Yes, praise God. That's, my be- that's the best part. That's the best part of a wedding. It's my favorite part. Now, the worst part of a wedding for, who, for me who officiates weddings, the worst part for me is trying to fill out that marriage license. After the ceremony, nobody wants to sign it. You've got to have a witness to sign it. You can't find somebody that wants to sign it. And then you're under all this pressure to fill out those blanks properly because if you get one thing wrong, the ceremony is void. I mean, it's a lot of pressure on an officiant to get this right. So I, one of the weddings that I've done, all the weddings I do, I sign my name, Sam. Somebody say Sam. Middle initial E. And then Greer, Sam E. Greer. That's how I sign them. And so I, I did one, and I signed Sam E. Greer. And, and a few, and that's how I signed it, Sam, middle initial E. Y'all understand? My middle initial's E. Sam E. Y'all get that? Greer. Isn't that simple? Sam E. Greer. And so I sent it off, signed it that way, and the couple sent me this picture of my name that the clerk printed on the certificate. <laughs> Same Greer. That's an official marriage certificate printed with my name, same. I know a lot of people who have the same name. I don't know anybody named same. Never met anybody named same. That's the worst part of a wedding right there. So you got the best part and the worst part. And that's with every area of life. You got the best part and the worst part. And so today we're going to see what happens when the worst becomes best and the best becomes worse. Right here from the words of our Lord in Matthew chapter 5. So I want to show you how we can say that no matter what you face, as good as it gets as a follower of Christ, all the joy, all the peace that you have, even when you go through bad struggles, Jesus is king, he's Lord, he's giving you a peace and a joy that surpasses all understanding. And even in that moment, you can know today you're still living your worst life right now. It gets far better when we get to glory. Far better. So how can we say that, though? Don't listen. Don't take my word for it. Listen to the words of Jesus, Matthew 5. Here's the first reason or way that we can say you're living your worst life now in Christ. Number one, heaven longs for disciples of God. Heaven longs for disciples. Heaven longs for learners and students of God and His Word. Heaven is longing for people to long for heaven. And so this is what we see here in verse 1. Check this out. Uh, The Bible says Jesus seeing the crowd. Somebody say seeing. Now this means that that, that the Lord had compassion on the crowds. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus sees you right where you are? And he loves you just like you are? He doesn't love, he's not waiting to love you when you become a future version of yourself. He loves you right now. And all your guilt and shame and filth, he loves you right now. And all your self-righteousness, he loves you right now. He loves you. He has compassion on you. That's what this means. He sees the crowds. And there's proof of this 
in the last three verses of chapter 4. So just look above chapter 5, look at the end of chapter 4 in Matthew, and we see how much the Lord loves and has compassion on the crowds. Listen to this, verse 23, chapter 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, this is Jesus, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And look at this. And great crowds followed him. So they flocked to him because he cared about them. He loved them. He paid attention to them. He cared for them. But there's also another side of this seeing the crowds. Not only did our Lord have this perfect balance of mercy and compassion, but he also has this perfect balance of discernment. (laughs) He not only sees the crowd, he sees through them. He knows their motives. He sees their heart. He sees your heart. And he sees my heart. And he sees our motives. And he knew ultimately that the crowds weren't really longing for Jesus. They were longing for what Jesus could give them. Be it bread, healing, being made whole, whatever it was. Jesus knew this. So we shouldn't be surprised when the Bible says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, he is not trying to escape the crowd or avoid the crowd or ignore the crowd. Listen, he loved the crowd. He poured himself out for the crowds. He's proven that. We read that here. But before the crowds, you know what Jesus said to a group of guys? He looked at him and said, hey, you guys, you follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And so that's... Well, we come when we get to Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. He sat down. He opened his mouth. He taught them say. And his disciples, the Bible said, they came to him. (laughs) They came to him. Because he's making them fishers of men. Now, I stand before you today, and I need to repent, honestly. I've done my fair share of griping and complaining about these trains on Hamill Road. These trains and I will always have a tumultuous relationship. Always. But I do need to repent of that because now I've been to Los Angeles, California. (laughs) And you've never, if you've never been to Los Angeles, you've never been delayed. Don't you think for a minute that waiting on a train here is delayed? Oh, no, 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 no. When it takes one hour to go six miles, that's delayed. And that's just normal. It's not a wreck or anything. It's just normal stuff. I mean, Los Angeles traffic, listen, Atlanta traffic is as easy and smooth as driving Miss Daisy compared to L.A. traffic. It's brutal, brutal. And, and I get it, the, the terrible, terrible tragedy that occurred while, while we were there, uh, that helicopter crash with Kobe and his daughter and some other folks on that helicopter, just a tragedy. Happened on Sunday when we were in worship. At a church, I got a ding on my phone. I was taking notes, and it popped up a notification in Kobe's 41 years old death. It was just, it was just tragic. But I understand why people like Kobe and people that can afford it travel on helicopters. I get it. They, they have heli- helipads. They call them helipads. Helicopter pads where helicopters park, land, and take off. They have them all across L.A. like we have parking spaces here in Chattanooga. 
they're everywhere. And I get it because it's brutal. And you want to do everything you can do to avoid those crowds. But here, please understand, Jesus is not ignoring and avoiding the crowds. He loved the crowd. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the nations. He loves the peoples of all the world. He loves them. That's why he, see, Jesus understood in his incarnate state as a human, being 100% human and 100% God, he understood that, hey, I am in one place at one time. I can't be in two places at one time in my incarnate state. He understood that. So his formula to reach the nations was discipleship. To disciple these group of guys and have them multiply and have them multiply and have them multiply. That's been the model for 2,000 years to reach the nations. And he knew that. And so he saw the crowds. He loved the crowds. But he went up on this mountain, the Bible says, and when he got up there, he sat down. He didn't sit down because he was tired or needed a breather. No, he sat down because when a rabbi sat down in that culture, that meant, hey, he's about to officially speak. He's taking his seat of divine authority and he's about to speak. That's why today we say that this professor or that professor holds this chair or that chair, an honored position of teaching at a university. And when Jesus sat down, he is divinely declaring his absolute authority when he begins to teach. And so he sat down on the mountain, and his disciples came to him. They knew what that meant. They came to him. When he sat down, here they come. They came to him. Now, I know that uh, there are a lot of, in the Gospels, in the New Testament, there's different groups of people. We read about the 12 and the 3 and the 120 and the crowds. Robert Coleman identifies all of those as groups that Jesus attracted. Like, for example, the three were closest to Christ. They they were his E3 group. The 12 followed him for three and a half years. The 120 was somewhat committed, maybe a little bit emotionally disconnected. And then the crowds were full of all kinds of people. Belief, unbelief, curious, cautious, critical. Just the whole spectrum from belief to unbelief in these crowds that Jesus attracted. And so, for example, tonight, Super Bowl parties. There's going to be Super Bowl parties all over our nation tonight. And some people are going to be there because they're die-hard followers of the Chiefs. Some people are going to be there because they're die-hard followers of the 49ers. Other people are going to be there because they're just fans of the sport of football. They just like the sport. Others are going to be there because their friends are there. Others are going to be there because they want to watch the commercials, right? Or they want to eat the food. There's a whole spectrum of people that are going to be there. This morning, in this place, for those of you who've dropped by, tuned in, logged on, across churches, across our world today there are different types of people in this crowd there are some disciples I truly believe there's some people here today that are following Christ with all they've got I believe that you are sold out and committed to being a disciple of Christ there are others that are here that may be curious but cautious maybe you're in the 120 and you identify yourself as a follower of Christ but you emotionally you're just kind of distant you're a guy and you don't want to get with a group of three to five men because that's awkward and men, cool guys don't do that and share. What are we sharing about? Or maybe you're a lady and you've been betrayed by ladies and you really don't want to get in a group with ladies and connect that way. And Some of you are here in that boat. Some of you are here and you're, you walk in, you look around and 
you're here every week, but you never get connected. Kind of like going to a gym, joining a gym. Walk in and you look at the treadmill. You never get on it, but you look at it. You look at the elliptical, but you never get on it. You look at it. You go watch them do the class, but you never participate. You look at the weights, but you never pick them up. I mean, is that going to help you physically? Are you going to get any more in shape? Of course not. So spiritually, you come here and you just kind of on the fringes. You're not wanting to get connected, and then you leave. And here, Jesus longs for you to long for him. He longs for his disciples. That's his model. That's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. And so here's Christ. He sees the crowd. Follow me now. He goes up on the mountain. Somebody say mountain. This is important. The mountain piece is important. Okay? Because Moses did a similar thing, did he not? Moses went up on the mountain at Mount Sinai. Got the Ten Commandments. And people think, hey, these are things I have to do. I have to follow these rules to be right with God. No. Moses gave the law after grace. Moses gave the law after the people were rescued and saved from Egypt. They were delivered from the slavery of Egypt. Then he gave them the law. It says, because the Lord has saved you, now you're able to live this way. Because you're living under grace. Okay? You've been saved. We get to the New Testament. Jesus, he's up on this mountain. He's not giving us laws to follow. In fact, he takes the Mosaic law. He says, you've heard it, you've heard it was said this, but I say to you this. And the same way, Jesus is talking to those who have followed him, and he's making them fishers of men. He's talking to believers here. Those who have trusted him, those who are under the grace of God. He says, listen, you don't do these to be right with God. You do these because you indeed, in fact, are already right with God because you've come to faith alone by grace alone, in Christ alone. So, here he is. His disciples come to him. What is a disciple? A disciple is simply this, a learner, a student. That's all a disciple is. If you were going to be a lawyer in Jesus' day, they didn't have law school. You had to go be an apprentice with another lawyer. If you wanted to be a shepherd, you didn't go to Shepherd University. You had to team up with a chief shepherd, and the chief shepherd would teach you, and then when you were ready, you became a shepherd. So these disciples, they attached themselves to the rabbi. And they followed Jesus for three and a half years. And his model of discipleship is so simple. He said, watch, do, and then teach. I want you to watch me. And I want you to do. And then I want you to teach others to watch and to do. Watch, do, teach. Watch, do, teach. And then teach others to watch, do, teach. That, that's the form. It's been that way for 2,000 years. Hasn't changed. It's worked pretty well. So here's Christ. He goes up. He sits down. He opens his mouth. Now, you may be here today and think, wow, you know, with social media, everybody has a voice, right? Everybody gets to open their mouth with social media. Why should I listen to this voice? Why should I listen to this guy who opens his mouth named Jesus? Here's why. Because there was another opportunity Jesus had to open his mouth on another mountain in fact he was drug out of the city taken up on this mountain he had every right to curse you and me he had every right to defend himself he had every right to make a deal with the devil he had every right to reason with the father he had every right to call the angels of heaven to take him off that cross but the bible says he did not open his mouth and he died for your sin, and he died for my sin. And they buried him. 
And three days he was raised from the dead. And his resurrection is our receipt proving to us that he alone can forgive our sin. I would say that it'd probably be wise to listen to this voice. The one who did not open his mouth as he died for you. And then he taught them. Now I understand there's some crazy teachings out there, okay? One, one of my favorite preachers from the past is Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a professional baseball player in the late 1800s. And he was very athletic. I mean, he was animated. In fact, he would run from one side of the platform and he would slide all the way across to the other side. He, he was the first baseball player to run the bases under a particular time. I can't remember the time, but he was one of the first ones to run it in that time. So he was very athletic. And he would preach, and literally, like he was stealing a base, just dive across the state. Now, I'm not going to dive across the state. I'm not going to do it. I'll break something on me or something up here. I'm not going to do it. But he did it all the time. And, and he, he, had some, he had some convictions that, he felt very strongly about. And we look at those, what, 140 years later and just shake our heads. Say, what is this guy thinking about? He, here's what Billy Sunday said was the greatest challenge for the church in the 19th century. Here's what he said. Greatest challenge for the church was card playing. Playing cards. Man, don't you wish that was our greatest challenge today? <laughs> card playing? That's strange, right? How, that seems kind of odd and out of place. Or maybe, you know, I have a conviction that I will abstain from drinking alcohol 100%. I'm going to abstain from that totally. You may not have that conviction. You may not. I know the Bible doesn't teach thou shalt not drink, but that's a conviction I hold to. And people look at that and say, man, that's strange. And they scratch their head and they shake their head. And so we have all these different teachings and all these different denominations and from all these different generations. So where can we look to see a portrait of what it means to be a disciple? You know, cutting through all these man-made rules and laws and convictions, where can we see, well, here it is right here, the Beatitudes. Here's a portrait, a definition of a disciple. And Jesus taught them, and this is what he said. Now, I get it. Jesus had some hard sayings. You know, it's easy for you and I to say, hey, Jesus loves you. Isn't that easy to say? Or Jesus forgives you. Or, or that's easy to say. Or Jesus died for you. But it's hard to say what Jesus said. I'm the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father but by me. You mean to tell me that Jesus claimed that he was the only way to heaven? Yes. That is a hard saying to say. And so I can stand here and say that Jesus was not politically correct. Now it's not politically correct for me to say Jesus is not politically correct. I know that. Correct. I get that. It's hard to say what Jesus said, but the Bible says this is what Jesus said. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said things like, Hey, few are going to enter the gates of heaven, but many will go down that road of destruction. Jesus said that in this story. He said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do this and that in your name? And he's going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me. It's hard to say that, but this is what Jesus said. And what Jesus is saying here, he longs for you to long for him. He went up there and sat down so his disciples could come in real close. Jesus wants you to come in real close.
You know, when we figured out we were going to Los Angeles, Tanya ordered us some tickets. Good glory. She ordered us tickets to Dr. Phil. I can't tell you how I feel about going to see Dr. Phil. I've been detoxing Dr. Phil for a week. Okay? I've seen two Dr. Phil shows, my first and my last. I'll tell you that. So she got us tickets to see Dr. Phil, and, and, and that morning we were headed over there, and there were hundreds of people there to see. And she was praying the whole morning, oh, God, please let me sit by Robin, Dr. Phil's wife. She wanted to sit by Robin. I said, there's no way. I'm thinking to myself, there's just no way. I mean, there's 300 people here. There's no way they're going to seat us by Robin. That's just not going to happen. And we walk in, and, of course, Tanya's just gorgeous. And the producer saw her and just immediately ran up to her and said, hey, you come here. You come right here. You're going to sit right here by Robin. Sat her right there by Robin. <laughs> and then they let me tag along and sit next to her. So Tanya's the closest person in the whole room to Robin. Robin comes in, sits down. She's got all these gifts she's handing out, cups and mugs, and, and she's handing them out to her section. Now, she's waving to everybody in the studio. By the way, I need to clear this up. Tanya and I were not on the show, Okay. <laughs> We were not like on the platform of the show. We were in the studio audience. All right? Robin sits out there in the audience. So she's giving out all these gifts, and she's waving to everybody. She loves everybody, but she has something she's giving to those closest to her. You know, Jesus loves the world. He, he, he truly does. He truly loves the world. That's why he gave his life for whosoever believes. He loves the world. But, man, he longs for men, women, boys, and girls to draw near to him, to long for him, not what we can get out of him, but for him. This is how we know we're living our worst life now because heaven longs for disciples of God. Number two, heaven applauds those who belong to God. Look at the word blessed in chapter three. Somebody say blessed. Somebody say happy. Somebody say happy, happy, happy. Yes, happy. That's what that word means. It means happy. Now, we tie our happiness to what is happening. If we like what is happening, we are happy. If we don't like what is happening, we're unhappy. That's not really what this means here. Now, yes, this does have the idea of being happy. It has the idea of a person who is blessed by God, a person who is especially favored by God, and in some sense happy because of that. Yes, it does, in a sense, mean that. On a more personal level, we need to understand that the, the, the people that Jesus is speaking to here in the first century, they never expected to be happy. This would have blown their minds. See, we in America, we expect our Declaration of Independence declares it. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? It declares it. We, we, we expect to be happy, and when we're not happy, we're not happy about it. But these folks here, they never in their wildest dreams expected they would ever be blessed. Never. Life was hard in the first century. It's hard now, but it was really hard in the first century. They didn't expect to be blessed. They didn't expect to be happy. They heard this. Their, their, their eyes would have lit up. My fear is, here's my fear in, 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 in 2020 at Red Bank Baptist Church. Here's my fear. And, and, and listen, if you're a prayer warrior, please pray with me about this. Because here's my fear. My fear is that we'll walk through all these beatitudes and by the end of it, we'll just hmm, shrug our shoulders. Hmm. Okay, I'm happy now. Why, why does this, this doesn't really apply to me. I pray that's not our heart. I pray that we'll hear what it means to be truly blessed, approved, qualified by God. That's what this means. 
Those who are approved by God. Those who are poor in spirit are approved by God. They're qualified by God. Colossians talks about us being qualified through the blood of Christ. We need to look at this in a different way. We need to look at this from God's perspective. This is how God views people who live a certain way, who are under the grace of God. They are blessed. A consequence of you surrendering your life to Christ is a blessedness. God is pleased with those who trust in the one with whom he is pleased. That is his son. So look at it real quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Somebody say poor. Now this is not referring to monetarily broke. There's two words in the Greek for poor. One of them is monetarily broke. Those who don't know how they're going to make their next meal. Financially, they are struggling. They can't afford to eat. That demographic today we understand to be college students, right? That is not the word this is referring to. The Greek word this is referring to is being helplessly, hopelessly dependent upon someone else. Totally, utterly broke, okay? Being totally helpless. So when we think about this idea of being blessed... It's a poverty of spirit. For those who are poor in spirit, they're blessed. Those who embrace daily their dependence upon God for all that you need. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You're totally relying upon God. You can lean on God's promises. I promise they will not break. So lean on them. Rely upon them. Be poor in the spirit. Illustration I want to show you quickly in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Go to Luke 18, chapter 18, verse 10 through 14 in Luke 18. you got two men going to worship. Uh, many of you have come to worship today. I'm grateful that you've dropped by. I'm thankful that for those who have tuned in and logged on as well. So these are two men go up to worship. And in Luke chapter 18, verse 10, Jesus is telling this parable. It says, two men went up uh, into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Somebody say Pharisee. That means the best of the best. Okay? He's a religious elite of the day. You couldn't get better than a Pharisee. In fact, that's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of a Pharisee, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees were the best of the best in that culture, from man's perspective, okay? And then you have the worst of the worst. There's a Pharisee and the other, a tax collector, the absolute bottom of the barrel. So these two guys show up to worship. Let's check out what happens. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself in front of the church. All right, he's praying, but is he really praying or is he just talking to himself? I mean, listen to this. This isn't really a dependence upon God at all. He is more or less thanking God. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Like, he's really not thanking God at all. He's just kind of, if he's thanking God, he's saying, God, I thank you that I'm awesome. I mean, that's, that, God, I thank you that you're blessed to have me on your team kind of thing. All right, so the Pharisee standing by and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I don't have a pornographic, pornography problem. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like that tax collector. Thank you for that. This is what I do do. I'm so awesome. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he's just, and he just, here, here's his problem. He walks in with his own self-righteousness. He walks into worship that way. The tax collector walks in completely empty-handed. Look what he says. He comes in standing far off. He's, he won't even, he's in the back of the church. He's on his face. He won't even look up. And the Bible says he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's the truth. The majority of people in this church today, watching us, who tuned in, logged on here today, the majority of people in American churches are the Pharisees. We walk in with our own self-righteousness. We don't need anything. We got everything we need. 
And we thank God because we're journaling through the Word. We're reading the Bible. We're memorizing. We're studying. We're, we're giving. We're serving. And we come in here with our own righteousness. God can't, he can't feel filled hands. He can't do that. He can only feel empty hands. Right? So here's the problem. And this is what Jesus goes on to say. He said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. The tax collector left justified. Because the tax collector means the tax collector walked in with nothing. He walked out being right with God because he cried out, Oh God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And so God gave him the righteousness of Christ imputed unto him. So he walks out with the righteousness of God. The Pharisee walked in with righteousness, self-righteousness, his own righteousness. And then he walks out with his own righteousness, which in God's eyes is no righteousness at all. Our righteousness is filthy rags. So for you to belong to God, here, here's our problem in America today. For us to belong to God, we have to get to the point where we say we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We can't merit it. Here's our problem. What keeps us from belonging to God? It keeps us in this sphere of cultural Christianity. What keeps us from belonging to God is not your moral inability. It's not your inability to be moral. What keeps you from God, what keeps you from belonging to God, is your moral ability. Because your moral ability, your morality, has blinded you from the fact that you need God's grace. You need His grace. And you're so morally able, morality, you're, you're so able to be moral that you don't think you need God's grace. And you're blinded by that. And so you don't even belong to Him. And you don't even know it because you're blinded. And it just doesn't apply to being saved. It applies to every area of our life. Your kids are not messed up because of your poor parenting. That's not why they're messed up. Your kids are messed up because of your confidence in your good parenting. You say, I don't need the power of God in my parenting. I, I know enough about it to handle it myself. And you don't surrender to the king and say, oh God, I don't know what I'm doing. Please, as you come poor in spirit, help me. Give me your grace today to parent my children. This is in any career, any relationship that you have. The reason that we don't experience the power of God and His grace has nothing to do with our inability. The reason everything's messed up in your life is not your inability, it's your ability. The confidence you have in you. One sign that you belong to God is this. You walk with a limp. You have a limp. If you're strutting, listen, only turkeys strut, right? So if you walk with a strut, you don't belong to Him. You're not poor in spirit. You don't belong. Doesn't say we're to be rich in spirit. Doesn't say we're to be middle class in spirit. We're to be dead, broke, spiritually bankrupt in spirit. And heaven applauds those who belong to God. I agreed to go to the Dr. Phil show if Tanya would agree to go to a Lakers game. So I bought tickets to the Lakers and Clippers game on Tuesday night, January 28th. Cost me $200 a piece. That's crazy, isn't it? Why would I pay that? I'm not even a fan. I said, hey, we're going to L.A. I mean, these are the Clippers and the Lakers. I mean, how many more times am I going to go to L.A.? Not very many more times. So I'm, I'm going to take advantage of this. So I bought these tickets, going go to the game. And then Sunday, this tragedy happens with Kobe and his daughter's death and the other folks on that helicopter. And it was a tragedy. I mean, it was tragic. And I'm telling you, it felt like we were at one long funeral the whole week in L.A. The city just shut down. 
A couple years ago, we had Jonathan Evans in here, and he talked about a Dallas Cowboy that died, and they had a moment of silence for him before a game who was a current player on the team, right? Well, Kobe's death, he had such an impact on that city, they ended up canceling that game. They canceled it. Now, when it happened on Sunday and we heard about it, we began to hear how Lakers fans had stormed the Staples Center and the whole city was just shutting down. And I heard about our, the, the tickets and what it was going to cost to get in the Staples Centers that night. And I went and looked on Ticketmaster, and our tickets in our section that I bought for $200 were selling for $1,600 to $2,000 a piece. I'm thinking to myself, man, I can make four grand on this, I can make some money. And then I felt kind of bad. I said, well, you know, that's kind of bad to profit on somebody's demise like that. So I was torn on what to do because we honestly felt like we were intruding on somebody's funeral. I mean, the whole place shut down. Just shut down. And then I go to the International Mission Board on Thursday, our meeting, and the executive vice president stood up, and this is what he said. He stood up, and he read off 70 names, 70 of our international missionaries who died in 2019. He read out every name and where they served and what they did. And most of them were retired. I mean, the average age was 85. So most of them were retired from the International Mission Board. But some of them were active. They died of cancer and whatnot. And he read off every name and where they served. And I want to tell you, those 70-plus people, L.A. didn't shut down. No city stopped. Nobody even knows those people's names. I didn't know most of the names, never heard of them. But I tell you this, when they took their last breath and they opened their eyes in glory, can I tell you heaven stood up and applauded every one of those faithful saints? You know why? Because heaven applauds those who belong to God. Last one and we're done. This will only take a second. Number three, heaven belongs to those who are desperate for God. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Not will be the kingdom or might be the kingdom or 80% chance it's going to be the kingdom. Right now, for those who are poor in spirit, for those who belong to Christ, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is how this happens. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't work for it. It's a gift. Right, here's what happens. When you become poor in spirit, when you become desperate for God and you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God like Isaiah did in, in Isaiah 6, and woe is me, I'm, I, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a, a people of unclean lips and you recognize that and you see that and you ask for the Lord to forgive you and you receive that grace, here's what happens. You are taking yourself off of the throne of your kingdom and you're giving your kingdom to the king. And then what the king does, King Jesus, he turns right around and gives you his kingdom. It's beautiful. It's incredible. And so for you to get to the place where you say, Father, your kingdom come, you must first arrive at the place where you say, my kingdom go. You have to give it up. Heaven belongs to those who are desperate for God. Are you desperate for God? Nicodemus came to Jesus and Jesus told him, hey, you must be born again you got to be born again. That's the first step in being desperate for God. You recognize, hey, I am separated from God, and the only way back is to be spiritually, to be renewed in Christ, to be born again. And you do that by hearing the gospel that Jesus died for you. He was buried. He was raised to life. And for whosoever believe, 
If you believe that God raised him from the dead and you've confessed with your mouth he is Lord, you'll be saved today. You'll be saved today. So that's a decision you need to make. Now all of us, if we've made that decision, we are disciples. We are learners and students. And the first step of a disciple is baptism. That's the first step. Maybe you've yet to be baptized. You need to race down here and tell one of our pastors you want to be baptized. The next step for you is maybe getting in a life group or maybe in one of those smaller discipleship groups. You need to take the next step along this journey. Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Robert Smith said Nicodemus was lying. Jesus is not a teacher come from God. Jesus is God come to teach. So he is ready to disciple you, believer. So open your heart and receive the grace that is necessary for that to occur. Father, in the name of Christ, we love you. We praise you for your word today.